there are a lot of people interested in applying what we can learn from social insects to robotics because we can see that evolution has produced ways of uh, working together among uh, a lot of um, redundant actors that in the aggregate produces effective results. I think the hardest part for engineers working with swarm robotics is to make the robots as simple as the ants are. So if you really want the thing to work right every time, you wouldn't make it like an ant. But evolution has made ants work well enough that they've been very successful for 150 million years. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. I'm getting antsy to do this one. And that was a terrible pun and lead in because today we've got Deborah Gordon on the program. Deborah is a professor of biology at Stanford University, studying the evolution of collective behavior using ant colonies as a model. Her research focuses on how ant colonies regulate their behavior in response to environmental changes and how that's related to the ecology. It's incredibly, incredibly relevant given the nature of swarms and emergent behavior and holds a lot of insights into understanding other species, humanity, and of course, programming robotics. She's a partner on Ants in Space, a program designed to learn how ants search and coordinate, and using the information to better optimize the way that we program robotics and AI in the future. She's given two incredibly well-received TED Talks that have each received over a million views to date, and she's an expert when it comes to ecology, climate change, and the study of large systems. In today's episode, we discuss the emergent intelligence of ants and what humanity can learn from it, why intelligence isn't always clean, and it's usually simple, how ant colonies help AI researchers program robotics, Robotics, why ants' utilitarian society is so effective yet also inefficient, the system of task allocation that allows all ants to contribute and yet 50% to do nothing, and how we can solve complex problems in society with simple incentives. This one's completely outside the beaten path, guys. We're talking ants. We're getting deep down into the ant hill, so to speak, and looking at the the nature of civilization and how this can affect all of us and build a, a different form of future for humanity. This is one that I thought could be very interesting and beneficial and possibly trigger some spontaneous and out there thoughts for other folks out there listening to the podcast. So wanted to do the episode and it was a great one. It really enjoyed talking to Deborah. She's a fun one and has a lot of insight to add into this space. I hope you guys enjoy this as well. And before we get started, I just wanted to tell you guys about an exciting offer that we're going to be having for you listeners. If you go to disruptors.fm slash clash, you can register to win a free autographed copy of Gerd Leonard's book, Technology versus Humanity, The Coming Clash Between Man and Machine. It was great having Gerd on the podcast, and we decided to partner with him to offer this book for you guys completely free. So if you want to go and register, you can do that via Twitter, via subscribing, adding your email, whatever you want to do at disruptors.fm slash clash, you can get multiple entries into the raffle to win a free signed copy of Gerd's book, Technology versus Humanity. Again, that's disruptors.fm slash clash for more details and to register. And of course, there's no purchase necessary. The giveaway will be running February 8th to February 15th, ending at 8 p.m. PST. So make sure you go to disruptors.fm slash clash as soon as you hear this so that you can go and register. And if that giveaway is done, don't worry. We're trying to get a lot of these happening so that we can consistently have incredibly great books going out to our listeners for 
for free. So if we have another one going on and it's after the date when GERD's giveaway is ended, then go to disruptors.fm slash giveaway. All one word, giveaway, and whatever the most recent giveaway is that we're doing. If it's live, you can register there and hopefully win yourself an awesome free book. And now let's get on with the episode. Without further ado, I give you Deborah Gordon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. So Deborah, your work is so far outside our normal tact of where we focus. It's much more on exponential technology in the future, but I think what you're doing is super, super pressing given where, where the world is headed. So can you give us just a, a 30,000 foot view? What's your story? How did you come to study ants and what brings you here today? I started studying ants because I'm interested in systems that work without central control. And as a graduate student, I was first interested in developmental biology and how embryos grow. So an embryo is one of many systems in nature that grows without central control. There's nobody that says, okay, you be liver, you be bone. And yet through a process of interactions among cells, embryos develop into organisms with different kinds of tissue that work together. But the thing about embryos is that they're hard to see. It's hard to watch how cells interact in embryos. And so I chose ants because I was looking for an example of a system that works without central control where I can see everything. I learn by seeing and I wanted to be able to see. So man colony is like an embryo in that there's nobody in charge. Uh, There's one or more reproductive females that we call queens, but they don't have any power or authority. They don't tell anybody what to do. And all the ants that you see walking around are sterile female workers. And they work without having any global assessment of what needs to be done, but only using very local interactions. So in that way, an ant colony is like a brain or an embryo or any other system that works without anybody in charge. So an ant colony would more or less be the idealized version of what communism could be if it wasn't so fatally flawed? Well, communism is about equality and the distribution of power and ants don't really have power. So a communism is an attempt to solve some problems that ants don't really have. What are, what are the problems that ants do face? I know there's a lot of analogies we could look into in terms of how emergent behavior arises and what we can learn from that. So what are, what are the big challenging blocks or stumbling blocks that ants have? Can you take us through a little bit of what life looks like in an ant colony for people that aren't familiar? Well, an ant colony is really an it, has to be born and grow and reproduce and eventually dies. It's an organism that consists of many ants and uh, the queen, and every now and then they produce reproductives that make new colonies. So an ant colony has to solve the same problems as any other organism. It has to make itself a place to live. It has to find food. It has to raise its young. It has to reproduce to make more colonies. And it has to interact with its neighbors and things happen in the outside world that it has to deal with. So it has to solve all the problems that um, really any other organism has to solve. But it has to do it without a centralized control system, a, a central nervous system. How? Well, each ant uses the rate at which it meets other ants to decide what to do. So most ants can't see very well. They operate mostly by smell and they smell with their antennae. So when you see one ant touching another with its antennae, it is smelling the other ant. So ants, like many insects, are covered with a layer of grease 
that carries a colony odor. And when one ant smells another ant, it smells that odor on the other ant. And those odors change with what the ant is doing. So a forager smells different from an ant that's working inside the nest. So when one ant touches another, it knows the task of the other ant. And the ants simply use the rate at which they meet other ants to decide what to do. Or another kind of interaction that they use a very simple interaction involving smell is when one ant puts down a chemical on the surface where they're walking and that chemical will evaporate so it has a sort of a decay and one ant will smell the chemical put down by another ant. And when you see ants moving in a line in a trail, that's what they're using. So it's a chemical interaction with a little lag. So Each ant is um, bumbling around just using the rate at which it meets other ants and the other things that it smells in the world. And it has some very simple response. And in the aggregate, that produces the behavior of the colony. The behaviors which become incredibly complex. Is that is that just simple emergent behavior theory, so to speak, that small incentives lead to large structures? Is that it doesn't always work out like that? Why is it so effective with ants and why are they so good to study? Well, it's actually pretty messy. So ants, like many other natural systems, use distributed processes. So Each ant behaves in a a probabilistic way. So each ant doesn't do the same thing every time in the same situation. And each ant responds to what happens to it in this probabilistic way. And it's how that all adds together that produces the behavior of the colony. But it's not as though every ant is always doing exactly the right thing or that the colony always does the right thing. It's a pretty noisy process, but it works well enough. I mean, there's a lot of ants out there, so um, they're doing pretty well. But I think it's a mistake to imagine that it's all very effective and efficient and uh, working like a, a perfect factory. The thing is that no ant knows what needs to be done. So no ant can assess the global needs of the colony. And so it's a system in which these simple interactions have to respond and provide feedback in ways that reflect what's happening in the rest of the world around the colony in such a way that the colony will respond correctly more or less most of the time. Are these subconscious processes or is is this conscious? Is this something that occurs to the ant? No, I don't think, well, I don't have any way of knowing what's happening to the ant because unfortunately I can't talk to them, but it's pretty easy to explain what's happening without having to attribute any intention or motive to the ant. Which makes this very interesting for research into robotics and swarms. I, yes. I imagine is that is that part of your focus as well here? There are a lot of people interested in applying what we can learn from social insects to robotics because we can see that evolution has produced ways of uh, working together among uh, a lot of um, redundant actors that in the aggregate produces effective results. I think the hardest part for engineers working with swarm robotics is to make the robots as simple as the ants are. So if you really want the thing to work right every time, you wouldn't make it like an ant. But evolution has made ants work well enough that they've been very successful for 150 million years. Well, simplicity is the ultimate complexity. If you build something too complex, then it's ultimately not very stable. Are are ant colonies, do they have a concept of civilizations? When you spread out, is it a new genesis, so to speak, of a completely new civilization? Or do they somehow relate to each other? You mean, is each colony a separate civilization? Yeah. Would each country a colony be a separate country or a separate state or a separate city state? How Do, do we have no. any understanding of that? No, each colony is like a... a a separate individual. So a a population of colonies is like a forest of trees. 
Cats of the same species tend to be quite similar in what they eat and where they make their nests and what kinds of conditions they respond to. So uh, the ant colonies of the same species living in the same place uh, can compete for resources because they're all eating the same thing. And then there are often, in most places, there are a lot of species of ants all existing together, and so they interact with each other as well. But each colony is like a a city-state, only in the sense that it has its own life history and uh, its own chances to survive and reproduce. Understood. So there's no greater sense of us than other than the colony itself. Yeah. Oh, I don't think you even have to attribute a sense of us. So it's pretty frequent. So uh, ants of one colony often react differently to ants of another colony, and they do that by smell. But it seems that that also could work by a distributed process where each ant has a um, boundary between um, what the odors it considers to be nestmates and the odors it considers to be strangers. And uh, working with uh, Fernando Espunda, we came up with a model that fits some of the data that we have quite well. And the idea is that each ant's boundary in chemical space shifts over time so that when it's younger, it tends to accept the smells of everybody it meets. And as it gets older and goes through time and meets more ants of other colonies, it shifts its boundary and becomes more discriminating about who is a nestmate and who isn't. And that fits with what we know about many species of ants, that they tend to live inside the nest where they do meet only their nestmates. And when they're older, they go out and work outside the nest, which is when they would run into ants of other colonies. And we've done some experiments with one type of ant with harvester ants uh, that I've worked with a lot. And uh, those ants do, and we find that the foragers of those ants, which are the ones that meet other ants, are much more likely to fight with ants of neighboring colonies than the ants that work inside and have never had a chance to meet strangers. So in this way, it's analogous to the immune system. So the immune system of uh, mammals, the adaptive immune system, consists of many different cells, each of which can recognize a different pathogen. And over time, a person or an animal acquires more and more different kinds of cells that recognize more pathogens. That's why vaccines work, because then after getting the vaccine, you acquire the cells that recognize that particular pathogen. So that your response to pathogens isn't, it's not the case that every cell in your body recognizes every pathogen, but instead it's an ongoing distributed process where over time you're more likely to be able to react to a given pathogen because you're more likely to have encountered it before. So the uh, ant colony is kind of like that. It's like a collection of uh, workers, each of whom has a different threshold for what it will respond to as being an ant of another colony. And speaking of uh, speaking of uh, a reserve, so to speak, I know I was listening to one of your talks and something like 50% of ants in a colony are at any given time not really doing anything. Is that true? In, in a mature harvester ant colony, about a third of them are at any time not doing anything. Yes. So people have talked about that as if uh, those ants are lazy and they're trying to get a free ride. But I think that instead, there must be some function of those ants. Uh, For example, they work to dampen the feedback from interactions. So if interactions between ants stimulate them to do some task, as we know some interactions do, then if there are some ants who don't respond, it keeps the positive feedback from spiraling out of control. So I think that maybe those ants 
are not exactly lazy, but that they have a function for the uh, dynamics of the whole colony. So as an example, it would be like surge pricing with Uber. If there were slightly more cars on the road, then you wouldn't have that excess demand and those price spikes happening when everyone gets off of work because there was enough cars and vehicles on the road to accommodate everyone, even if we had slight overages in other times. Maybe. Um, So that would be more difficult for the extra Uber drivers than doing nothing is for the ants, but it might serve the same function. The ants ants hanging around in the nest don't care if they get paid or not, but the Uber drivers do. I I was just analogizing and trying to look at the differences between the systems. What can we learn from ants? Do you ever see humanity evolving or moving more towards a, a decentralized system similar to what ants have or possibly bees? Yes, I think that as we move towards larger and larger networks like uh, the communication networks that we have, once they become very large, then in some ways we do operate like ants or in this way in particular that it matters sometimes what the rate of interaction is without having any function for the content. So the ants are using the rate at which they meet and they're not transmitting any other message except the fact of having met. And I think that we have now some networks that are large enough that there are some consequences just to the rate of interaction, regardless of the content. Are you interested or have you been exploring the the blockchain and decentralized spaces at all? Essentially, people trying to create similar systems, but in a, in a human or in a, in a technological infrastructure type way? Yes, I think it's very interesting. And I think that um, we have a lot to learn from natural systems in how to create systems like that. And again, I think one important lesson is that the natural systems have a large tolerance for messiness, for mistakes, things not happening right the first time. And because one of the advantages of a large distributed system is redundancy. So the difficult part in applying those to human systems is that we have to find ways to create a tolerance for the messiness, which is what allows the system to work so well. First and foremost would probably be universal education and healthcare. Well, universal education and healthcare would be really helpful for everybody. I don't see the connection between that and the large systems, but tell me more about what you mean. Well, for the large systems to be functional, like with the Uber drivers, they would still need a way to survive. And oh, the, yeah. cur- the current in the current system that we have right now, they they would go hungry. But ants ants aren't going hungry; they're surviving. That's right. It's yes. a, a co- collective collective action, so to speak. Right. So it's a system based on the collective good rather than the um, individual profit. Do you think to to be able to do that? Do you think humanity would ever be able to be that utilitarian? I don't know. I think it's unlikely that we'll ever be without people who really value being richer and more powerful than other people, but. Maybe we can create situations in which, uh, as you say, everybody has the resources to get by, even if they're not among the, the few rich people. I think we definitely need to be moving towards that world. So with, with your work with ants and your work with the natural world in, at large, what's been the most interesting or fascinating experiences that you've had? Well, I love when the ants surprise me. So I like to go out and watch ants and uh, they do amazing things. And I think any kind of work involving observation of natural systems, that the best part is that you sometimes happen to be there when something amazing happens. And while there are just so many cases like that, it's hard to think of. Um, well, here's, here's a few. One is that the harvester ants 
So uh, I work, uh, I've been working for a long time with uh, harvester ants in the desert. They're in uh, New Mexico near the border. And they uh, live in a soil that's very much leached by flooding. And so it's very hard soil. And when the summer rains come, they build these little collars of twigs around the nest entrance and then they cover it with dirt so it makes a little raised wall to keep the water out to keep from flooding inside the nest and so it's amazing to watch ants laying down these little twigs one by one in a nice circle and covering it over when you realize that they don't have any idea what they're doing Um, so i still don't really understand how it's possible for them to do that without any kind of plan but they do make these structures and of course, we know that um, uh, many social insects make amazing structures, you know, the beautiful hexagonal comb of honeybees and uh, these uh, huge uh, towers that termites make. And um, I guess the uh, these little uh, turrets of twigs that the harvester ants make are just a very small and visible example of how they do it. Because if you look one by one, the ants are just kind of dragging twigs over there and laying them down in a pile. And eventually, I don't know how, there's enough twigs so they um, run into a barrier of twigs and start feeling like it might be good to put some dirt on there. And so then a bunch of them do that. And then you have this beautiful covered wall that keeps the rain out. So it's a very visible example of ants accomplishing something um, when no ant knows what they're doing. Um, another very different example is that, that I've also been working with uh, arboreal ants in the trees in Mexico. And they make an amazing network of trails through the branches of the canopy and all these tangled vines. And um, so the ants make these these pathways. And uh, I've been doing experiments where I just cut some little vine and look to see how they recover. And it looks at first like the ants are just going all over the place. In fact, they use what in uh, search algorithms is called greedy search. They go to the nearest node, the nearest viable node to the one that was cut. And they always search from there. And within 10 or 15 minutes, they make a new path, which is made simply by ants following the path that the um, other ants have laid down the most pheromone on before. So all these ants running around uh, resolve very quickly to a new path that works. And again, it's amazing to watch because it's clear that no ant has a map in mind of how the whole thing should be repaired, but they do it and it works really well. And this is kind of how the brain works in a lot of ways. We don't totally understand it, but it seems to have very similar parallels. Yes. So um, no neuron in your brain can think about an ant and yet somehow you can learn about ants. And so these uh, neurons connecting and firing um, create pathways or circuits that allow you to think about an ant. These pathways can change and um, uh, it's, Again, probably a very uh, similar kind of distributed process for the brain um, that creates the plasticity that's like what we see in the trails of ants in the trees. Are there any compelling theories in, in your view that explain why there are so many of these similarities in the natural world and how the order of things happen when it comes to large scale systems? Well, they're similar because the the kinds of processes that they're using are similar, but of course, brains don't work in exactly the same way as ant colonies, but they're similar because they're the same kind of thing. That is, it's a big system with many simple components that work through simple local interactions, and uh, they don't work in the same way. I think the most interesting question is, what can we learn about how different kinds of systems like this have evolved to perform different tasks in different environments. So even among the ants, different kinds of ants, and there are 14,000 species of ants, 
and they work very differently in different kinds of situations. So there are many, many different ways to organize a system, a large system that operates through simple interactions without central control. And what we see in the diversity of nature is different solutions to those problems. And this is kind of also what we see in the diversity of, of AI, of startups, of businesses, the, the creation and then evolution of multiple, multiple ideas and projects and systems architectures that continuously iterate. Do you think, well, do you think the, the fact that there are 14,000 ants would l- lend credence to the fact that if we don't achieve some type of artificial general intelligence, we'll have thousands of smaller, simple intelligences? Well, I don't think we need the ants to know that. I mean, I think any evolutionary process, if there are certain constraints, but there's some source of variation or uh, what you might call innovation or creativity, that you're likely to get different outcomes because you, you start from different points and you end up in different places. Do you consider a colony life or do you consider the ant to be the life, so to speak? I don't think that that question makes a lot of sense. You can't have a colony without the ants and the ants can't do what they do without being in a colony. So colonies are made of ants. It would be like asking, is the brain, I don't know, I don't know exactly how you ask this, is the brain neurons or is it a brain? Again, all of these systems are uh, neither the parts nor the whole, but the way that the parts work together to do the things that the whole does. I would agree. The question was where I wanted to go to was if we do create uh, if we do create AI and similar methods to this, is that something we should consider alive? Oh, well, if we if we make it, then I don't think it's alive. So things that are alive have certain characteristics. And uh, a basic one is that they make themselves. So I know that, of course, you know, we can get computers to uh, do things that we haven't explicitly told it to do. We get a computer to do something that we haven't explicitly told it to do, but still we had to make the computer and uh, get it started. So I I don't think it's the same kind of thing as being alive. But again, I, I guess that people can get very caught up in that that question, and you get stuck in a region where there isn't really going to be a good answer. So. I think that right there is probably a good answer. There's probably not going to be a very good answer. Yeah. How do you think about task allocation and what you've learned from ants and how it applies, how it could potentially apply to humans, to society? Well, I, I started using the term task allocation to get away from the notion of division of labor. So uh, we have to start there. So division of labor was an idea that uh, Adam Smith came up with in the 18th century, the idea that societies can work better when people are specialized to do certain jobs because they will learn to get good at them. And, you know, he used the example of the, the candle maker and the uh, farmer that the um, a person who makes candles all the time will probably do better at making candles. And the person who is uh, concentrating on being a farmer might be a better farmer and so on. And there was uh, an idea that uh, social insect colonies might work like this, that there would be ants that are programmed to do one task or another. And instead, it turns out that ants move from one task to another. So an ant doesn't do the same task all its life. And task allocation is uh, the process that that regulates which ant does which task and also whether an ant of a certain task is active right now. Um, That is, an ant could be a forager in some sense, but not be foraging right now. So task allocation is a way of framing that question as a distributed process rather than as something that's inherent in the individuals. And of course, we see processes like that all over. Again, the um, development of an embryo is the same thing that a cell isn't 
sort of designated to be a liver cell through some genetic means because all the cells are genetically identical, but um, through their interactions, uh, different kinds of genes get turned off and on and that changes over time and so on. Uh, I guess in human societies, we also see processes that regulate who does what that aren't obviously all designated by central control. Yeah, you know, in the book, A Brave New World, there is a central control on task allocation and somebody decides for each new baby what their task is going to be and they make babies of certain kinds to fill certain roles. And so that's a sort of extreme vision of what our world would be like if we didn't have a process like task allocation, but in fact, it's more like it works in the ants. And it, of wor- course. it works in the ants because they're primarily pretty simple and that it's basic manual labor? Uh, well, uh, yeah, it works partly because in the ants, it works differently from the way it does with us that um, the ants don't learn to get better at a task by doing it. And of course, we do specialize and make uh, choices and are constrained by our uh, by the, the, the social class and the situation that we grew up in and so on. So it's not as if every person is free to do anything. And um, it is true, as Adam Smith pointed out, that people do get better at things by doing it. You know, people become expert and they they learn and they probably do make better candles if you focus on making candles. So with us, we have our own histories and our own way of learning and the the uh, social situation we're in. So it's not exactly like the ants, but it also isn't completely controlled by some central authority. So realistically, to try to employ a system like ants have, that would be A, disastrous, and B, would probably only be effective if you were pairing together similar jobs. So we had factory workers, we had transportation drivers, we had teachers, etc. You could have some type of possibly some type of Uber-esque system of work on demand between different different skill sets, but not across disciplines just because of the loss of the loss yeah. of skills gained, essentially. Right. You wouldn't want me maintaining a, a, an airplane um, because I would be really bad at it. Oh yeah. Lord, it would be a, it would it would be an interesting world. I know you've you worked on a project called Ants in Space, I believe, and I wanted to learn a little bit more about that because it sounds fascinating. Well, um, we got to send ants to the International Space Station. It was really fun for us. Not so sure about the ants, uh, and it was a, a project uh, asking a question about collective search. So, collective search is a problem that's interesting to a lot of people, including in robotics. If you want to send a bunch of robots to search another planet or to go into a burning building and see if anybody's in there, then they have the problem of how, what's the minimal amount of information that they need to exchange to guarantee that they search thoroughly enough and also cover the entire space that needs to be searched. And ants are good at solving this problem. And so we put ants in arenas and ask them to and um, let the astronauts open a little barrier so that the ants could search the new space and look to see how well they would search in microgravity. They had a hard time because they had to walk a lot more slowly to just hang on. So this was uh, another version of an experiment that I did here, you know, in gravity with uh, Argentine ants asking them to search uh, space and learned that they use the, uh, that they adjust how they search to density. So if you have more searchers, each one can afford to be more thorough because there'll be another searcher nearby searching over there. Whereas if you have a few searchers in a large space, 
they have to stretch out their paths to cover all the area. And Argentinas managed to adjust the shape of their path to their density, I think, using the rate at which they meet. And so the experiment that we did in the space station was asking whether ants would do that in microgravity. But what happened is that not only did they have to walk quite slowly just to hang on, but every now and then an ant would sort of lose it and go tumbling around in the little arena it was in. So it was very shallow, so they couldn't just go floating off, but they could start turning around. And so the relationship between how close one ant was to another and how often they met was kind of messed up by the fact that every now and then an ant would just be whirling around. So they didn't do as well at collective search in microgravity as they did in the control experiments we did on the ground, which is fair because, of course, ants haven't evolved to deal with microgravity. So we were asking a lot of them. Basically, they're hard-coded for something else. And this use case is just far enough outside of that, that it breaks the algorithm, so to speak. Well, they they do the same thing. They try to do the same thing they would do anywhere because that's that's what they do. But it didn't work as well in microgravity. It's kind of analogous to a Roomba being in a, a room with stairs before they had better sensors and just going tush, 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 because yes. it's not it's not programmed for something like that. That's right. How do we how do we a better question? How do we are we able to right now currently model ant behavior to a, a pretty a pretty fine tuned degree? Do we have the understanding of those different incentives and drivers, the different use cases, so to speak, to be able to to model something like an ant colony or an ant spread? Yes, we have. Um, we can model some of the things that ant colonies do. So one thing that uh, we've been um, working on modeling is how harvester ant colonies regulate their foraging behavior. And we can predict pretty well um, how an individual ant uses its interactions with others to decide whether to leave the nest. So that's sort of the individual incentive, if you like. And then how in the aggregate, given that process, and the conditions outside, how the colony's foraging activity will change. So, of course, anybody can model anything in the sense that you can get a computer simulation to create a, a series of pictures or processes that mimic what you see. Uh, the hard part is trying to do it with um, a realistically small number of parameters that corresponds to what the real system is doing. So that's a lot harder. So uh, simple models are much more difficult to make uh, reasonably realistic than a very elaborate model that just basically recreates what you already see. How many lines of code, so to speak, or how many parameters do you think we would need to model the behavior of ants effectively? What would be like the perfect number in your opinion? Well, as few as possible. So um, another modeling project I've been involved with is with uh, is modeling the trail networks of the arboreal turtle ants that I've been working with in Mexico. And that's a project that I'm doing with Saket Navlaka, who's a, a computer scientist from UC San Diego and a grad student, Arjun Chandrasekhar. And we've come up with a model for explaining how the ants make these networks of trails and the trees that has only two parameters. One is the probability of exploring. That is, we know that the ants use the uh, pheromone trails laid by other ants. So at every junction in the vegetation, they take the trail that has had the most ants recently passed by. But every now and then, an ant has to go on uh, the wrong path or explore or not take the path that's most weighted, um, or they never find anything new. So one parameter in the model is the probability of exploring. And the other parameter in the model is the rate of decay of the pheromone. So the pheromone that they're putting down, this chemical that they're putting down, is volatile, it evaporates. 
And the rate at which it evaporates sets the dynamics of how long a time between when one ant passes a point and another ant passes a point, how long before that pheromone will be gone and the process has to start again. So the second parameter is the rate of decay of the pheromone. And from those two parameters, just the probability of exploring and the rate of decay of the pheromone, we can get the um, behavior of the ants. How could we possibly do something like this without being able to observe the results? For instance, when researchers are trying to create algorithms to control robots, even to control simple robotic systems, they're trying to be as simple as possible. And yet the the consequences of a simple program, a simple incentive can be unexplainably complex. Yeah, because it's very hard to avoid putting in extra things. So if you build a robot, you build a robot that can do certain things. It has certain sensors. It has a certain response time. So all of that is pretty elaborate. And then if you send a bunch of them to moving around, they're physical objects in the real world and they bump into things and bump into each other and topple over and block each other's path and so on. So keeping it simple is really difficult because you have to be aware of all the many different kinds of properties that you're taking for granted when you make the thing. So it'll be more and more or less a guess and check and an evolution of robotics, similar to an evolution of biological species. Well, I think that, um, like I said, that engineers who have learned to be really good at making things like to make things that work really well. And so it's difficult to restrain the urge to add more things to the robot to make it better and better. That's taking it further from a natural system where systems like an ant colony, where it's not the case that each ant is uh, loaded down with lots of equipment to make the right decision. But instead, the what evolution has created a system where uh, each participant is very, very simple and it works because of the way that they interact. So it's hard for engineers to restrain the urge to make each component as good as possible. And that means adding a lot of stuff. Yeah. So the hard part, I think, of swarm robotics is is to keep simplifying what the what the robots do. Yeah, perfection is achieved not when there's nothing left to add, but when there's nothing left to remove. I think this is the big problem with yeah. a lot of the a lot of the research and advancement when it comes to AI these days is they they're trying to go about the problem. I, I feel in totally the wrong way because the brain, an ant colony, a swarm of birds, these are inherently very simple things that are very complex. So they have simple rules regulating them. And the complexity arises from that interaction between seemingly simple things. And I feel like we're trying to build more complexity and power in to achieve something. Yes. So to get the kinds of systems that have evolved in nature, which work really well, we have to tolerate a lot of noise and messiness because that's integral to the way that the natural systems work. But if you want it to be perfect every time, if you're an engineer and you like things to be perfect every time, then it's kind of a different mindset. I mean, it's great that engineers want things to be perfect. You know, it's good for all of us who ever drive over a bridge or get in an airplane that the engineers wanted it to be perfect. But for some kinds of systems... Uh, perfection will stand in the way of working as a natural system does. Like essentially anything that's creative. If you try to be perfect, you'll never you'll never really be anything. I wanna I wanna transition out a little bit. So I know a lot of your work brings you into climate change, and my understanding is you're pretty passionate on the topic. Uh, I don't think anybody in their right mind can not be worried about climate change right now. <laughs> What's your what's what do you see in your work right now? What's happening? What's changing? And how does it impact you personally? How does climate change impact me personally? Um, now, now and in the future. 
Well, I don't think that um, basically climate change impacts me personally any differently from the way it impacts the other billions of people on the planet. I mean, we're all together in this. And I think, you know, we're all going to be subject to extreme weather events and um, around here, more uh, in California, more fires and resource shortages. And you're uh, going to have to start thinking about water and uh, just places to live and grow food and all of that. So none of that is, is a personal problem. I have been tracking a, a population of colonies in the desert in Arizona for now 30 years and seen a lot of changes in that place. And uh, there's been a long drought. The vegetation has changed a lot. The ways that the ants are, the way that their form has changed. And I think any system that anybody has watched carefully, you see changes. So uh, we're seeing a change everywhere. So I don't know, I like um, uh, started a website called Land Talk. Anybody can look it up. It's www.landtalk.org. And we're offering a place for people to post interviews between a younger person and an older person about changes that they've seen. Everybody's seeing climate change. It's part of ordinary everyday life and uh, doesn't take any special scientific training to see it. And uh, one of the ideas behind Land Talk was to give a place for people to to tell those stories and for people looking at it to realize how climate change is ordinary. What we can do about it is a problem that I think will concern absolutely engineers and scientists. And again, everybody will need to participate in trying to do what we can to make it less bad. Do you see any any methods from your work, any systems that ants implement, anything that you think would be beneficial for people to hear, learn about, or think about as a potential solution to either climate change or large-scale problems? Uh, well, uh, what I found with the harvester ants is that natural selection is favoring the ants, the colonies that uh, conserve water. So it was a surprising result that the colonies that sacrifice getting food in order to conserve water are the ones that are having more offspring. And that was true during a, a period of drought that might have ended in the last year or two. We don't really know for sure if that's true yet. So it was a surprise that um, conserving water was already under selection. And um, that doesn't mean that, you know, we should all act like the ants. But of course, we also um, need to be thinking about where water is going to come from for all the people that um, are that need it. So maybe that's a lesson from the ants. <laughs> I think that uh, people will have to come up with better, faster solutions than ants will come up with just through evolution. Definitely, because we have a problem that ants probably could not solve. Although that said, if we if we screw yeah. it all up and everything goes to shit and we die, well, I'm pretty sure we'll probably still have ants. Yeah. Is, 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 well, we made how, how many also, ants, ants the make the problem. We made the problem. Yeah. Well, we are definitely the problem. How many how many ants are there in the world? I heard, I feel like I heard a stat that if you added up the the entire net weight of all of humanity, then ants would still be more. Yeah, I don't know. There's lots of interesting estimates of the number of ants, but nobody has ever made a good count. I think there is some data to support the idea that if you weighed everything alive in the tropical forest, that ants would be about a third of it. So maybe a half. So if you take all the big trees and the jaguars and everything, and you put that on a scale on one side and you put the ants on the other side, that the ants would be a substantial portion of the biomass of the tropics. But as for how many ants there are, I don't think anybody has a good way of counting. So I think it was George Moore who said that there were more ants than chips. Uh, but 
um, it's not clear either how many chips there are on Earth. So I don't think we have a very good way to evaluate that statement. Outside of your own work, what technologies or industries are you most excited with and why? Well, I'm interested in, I mean, I think the most important technologies now are uh, technologies that provide some sustainable source of energy or save energy or, um, again, conserve water. And I am constantly surprised by how little of that comes up in the training for engineers. So my son is an engineer and I, um, you know, he went to every uh, tech camp and robotics camp at Silicon Valley. And so now he's a grad student in computer science. And I have been always really astonished by how rare it was for anybody to tell young engineers, you know, you have a job to do here and it has to do with saving the planet. So there's been so much emphasis on making new things for people to buy rather than doing things that help. And I think that that will have to shift. So engineers are going to be really important to uh, keeping us all going. And um, it's not just a matter of making another thing to play with, although people like things to play with, and that's fine. I don't have any problem with that. But I think that uh, we need to be focusing some of the um, energy and talent and creativity of engineers into making uh, systems that are going to help keep us all going. You mean our top paid and most talented engineers shouldn't be focused on making you spend more time on Facebook and buy junk you don't want on Amazon? Yeah, exactly. It's uh, it's, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I um, I'm not entirely sure uh, when you grew up, but I imagine you you at least remember the the space race, and people were excited about something, something meaningful. And today they're excited about getting a new iPhone. Yeah, well, I don't really. I was I was little for the as this child for the space race, but I as I you know tell my students and my kids, I definitely remember the world before Google, where you look things up in books, books. You know, um, sitting here in my office looking at a lot of books. And some sense that the truth and uh, ideas were built in a system that had a history and structure rather than coming in little searchable nuggets. And I think also the um, sense that the goal of engineers is to make a lot of stuff and making a new kind of stuff is, is what's most important is a kind of fragmentation that's associated with uh, the world, the idea that the world is made up of little tiny bits of information that sort of float around um, unrelated to each other. Yeah, it disconnects us from the physical world. It makes us feel like that's not important. How do we change that, though? The problem is the problem is technology, especially digital, is almost essentially infinitely scalable. So the returns are better, which means you make more money as opposed to things that may have much more purpose, but have less, much less of a economic driver behind that. Do you have any ideas how we can do that short of some type of regulation, subsidy, et cetera? I think that, um, you know, the fact that you that we're having this conversation, uh, we're part of a, a changing perspective that there are problems that need to be solved out there that are big and real and that just making more things won't solve those problems. So I think it will happen because uh, it will have to happen. And if it don't, remember, guys, there's a lot of ants out there. They will come to get you. <laughs> you're, you're like the, you're like the ant woman, right? You've got those superpowers to control them. No, I don't. You know, I I uh, loved in the Ant Man in the Marvel Ant Man movies. I don't know if you've seen those, but the scientist has this little thing he puts behind his ear, and then he can talk to the ants and tell them what to do. That's great, but unfortunately, I don't have one of those. 
You'll have to hit up the Marvel guys, see if you can get a cameo in, in one of those. It'd be a, be a lot of fun. If you could change w- one thing about the world, anything, I gave you a magic wand, what would it be and why? I don't know. That's hard. We need to be um, making more connection with all the other things that are alive in the world besides us. So I'm not sure how I would do that with a magic wand, but I think uh, we're in a time of uh, needing to look around and realize we're not the only beings on the planet. People are realizing now that their cell phone and Facebook and social media isn't necessarily good for them. Take the time that you would have spent on on social media on whatever it is on online and just get outdoors a little bit. You'll feel much happier. You'll get a little vitamin D as you might get a little perspective. <laughs> what uh, If you had to leave people with one thing, a quote, a call to action, it can be anything, what would it be and why? Again, I think uh, going outside and looking around, it might um, lead people to figure out the actions that they want to take. I like it. I think that's a good place to wrap this up, especially if it's sunny anywhere around you guys. Get outside and have some fun. Where's the best place for people to find you online, Deborah? Learn a little more about your work and check out this book that you got. You mean check out the books that I wrote? Um, yeah. The uh, Well, my uh, Stanford website. So if you search for Deborah M. Gordon at Stanford, you'll get to my lab website and that would be the best place to start. And of course, guys, we have links and all of that in the show notes, disruptors.fm. Thanks for coming on today, Deborah. This has been fun, interesting, and outside of outside of the beaten path, so to speak. Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. Uh, and thanks for tuning in, guys. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this and we'll talk to you again soon. Cheers. If you want more of the Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.